why not have a whole lot of different mobility options? And we got to build our cities to accommodate that. And then that's, it comes down to us as city builders to make sure that we're bringing those options for people so that they can have the best experience possible in the place that they live, work, and play. Hi, everyone. This is John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host for this episode of the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity, which is brought to you by the generous support of our donors and patrons from our Patreon page. Thank you so much. I simply could not produce this content without your help. And if you are not yet a contributor, but would like to provide your assistance, just click on the links in the show notes. Or if you happen to follow us on Facebook, hit that ever-present donate button on our page. In this episode, I'm delighted to deliver my conversation on all things city building with Mark Nikita, president of Archive DS in Detroit, Michigan. He's an architect, a city official, a world traveler, and a lifelong learner. And we touch upon each of these during our discussion. Please enjoy. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Oh, very, very good to be here, John. Now, Mark, you are in Birmingham, Michigan. Is that correct? That's where I'm at right now. Yeah, at my home. So tell us a little bit about Birmingham. Where is it? I know that's in the Detroit area, but I, I've never had the pleasure of uh, visiting. Well, we're a, a, a 200-year-old city, and it's a city of uh, about 21,000 people. And we're a suburb of Detroit. We're just over 15 miles straight north uh, up Woodward Avenue, which is the sort of main street out of Detroit into uh, the northern suburbs. So we're, we're very close to the city. It takes about 20 minutes by car for me to get to my office downtown. And uh, Birmingham is a, a traditional city with a traditional downtown, traditional neighborhoods, walkable, pedestrian oriented. It's, as I said, it's 200 years old, about now, actually, uh, uh, this year, we're celebrating 100, uh, 200 years, and we have all the components of a, a, real, a really notable traditional downtown, but our downtown is quite large, actually. It doesn't, it doesn't accommodate just simply our 21,000 residents. We actually are a downtown for a much broader, sort of a larger region in the northern suburbs of Detroit. So we, we capture for our downtown between 200 and 400,000 people for about 4 million square feet of downtown office, retail, residential. And uh, it's, so it's a, it's a bigger downtown than, uh, than I guess uh, you would think for a 20,000 20, person city. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. That's a great description of it. And I, I'm going to assume that it was probably a streetcar uh, suburb at one point in time. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, typical streetcar suburb up Woodward Avenue. There were a number of different stops and uh, the Detroit Urban Railway stopped right in our downtown in the building, which was the station for many, many years is still in use as a retail space, actually. Excellent. Excellent. So today is uh, April 8th, 2020, and we're obviously in the midst of uh, a rather challenging time with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I know that Detroit is is has been hit quite hard. How are things going for you in uh, Birmingham? Well, of course, yes. Uh, Detroit is uh, what they're calling a hot spot, so we're experiencing that in uh, a number of a number of different ways. In Birmingham, we're a little bit out of the city center, uh, so we're experiencing it uh, in a different way than I think the center city. But regardless of that, we of course have all of the concerns and are doing everything possible from our perspective uh, in the city to address as many issues as possible and make it is, I don't want to say easy, but less uh, concerning for our residents here in Birmingham as possible. So there've been a number of different initiatives that we've put forth from the city's perspective to address some of the concerns of the, of the current uh, circumstance. And I understand you're still serving on the city commission, is that correct? Yes, I've served the city for many years now, uh, going back to 1997 when I was first appointed to the planning board. So I've served as an appointee here in the city of Birmingham for uh, many years, over 10 years as an appointed planning board member. Then I've been on the city uh, commission for three terms now, and I've served two terms as mayor 
so currently I am a city commissioner in my third four-year term. Okay, fantastic. So that's a, an added level of responsibility and I'm, I'm sure stress in terms of looking after your, your fellow residents there in Birmingham. Yes, uh, we're, you know, we're getting emails every day on different circumstances that are happening. We have an exceptional staff here. We work with the city manager, who is an excellent leader of our staff and the different departments that we have. So there have been a a lot of different things that have come up. Um, Of course, one of the key ones is communications. So we've uh, we've added a number of things to our website. We've done uh, a COVID-19 hotline, which you, you can call for any assistance. We've had uh, citywide email distribution beyond what we typically do. We've asked people to sign up for specific issues if that they want to know about. Uh, we've even had anybody that has, has the, uh, the virus. Uh, we have a connection with our public service and our, our uh, paramedics and uh, fire, uh, firefighting uh, team. Contact them every day, make sure that they don't need it. You know, if they need anything, it's been a, you know, a really, we've stepped it up and it's been very challenging, of course, but we're doing it. We're doing a lot of different things differently right now uh, to accommodate and try to anticipate any specific concerns as much as possible, given the, uh, you know, the situation that we're in. What are you seeing on the ground there in the city of Birmingham? We're a very uh, walkable com- community. Actually, we've been noted as one of the most walkable uh, urban suburbs in America by uh, different groups. Uh, the Wall Street Journal recently had uh, identified us as, uh, as, I think, the fifth most walkable Amer- American suburb. And so we have we pride ourselves on walkability and you know extensive crosswalks and sidewalks and we have 22 parks and and a trail that goes around our downtown. We have a number of commercial districts, all that are very very highly walkable. So we encourage people on a daily basis to to go out and walk. And of course, during this situation, you know, some would think that that encouragement is actually somewhat of a negative. But I think people have been very respectful of the uh, the guidelines and I know that you know we we go walking once or twice a day we have two dogs and we take them out my wife and I usually taking my uh, my two dogs out for a walk and I definitely note note now that almost everyone is wearing face protection and everyone is very conscious of the uh, the sort of six foot rule if you will when we come upon someone face to face in a in a in a sidewalk situation We'll find that uh, that people step aside uh, very politely. So it's been it's been quite pleasant, and I think that we've all been uh, recognizing the, uh, the the guidelines, if you will. And it's uh, I think that that's that's worked out quite well, given the you know well as well as could be expected. Yeah, I, I would even say that uh, what we've noticed here in our neighborhood, and and I've been talking with folks uh, uh, around the country, and actually even around the globe about this thing that's emerging and it's a it's a very positive side effect if you will <laughs> to this and it seems that people are are even more sociable but doing but doing so at a distance what are what are you seeing it's funny that you said that because i i noticed that actually as well that people are waving a bit more i was i, I have a vespa and i was just out this morning Zooming around town, uh, doing a couple things, and uh, and I noticed a few people waving at me, which wouldn't typically be the case. Uh, so I, I do think that there's a, a certain level of, I guess, recognition of communal experience. Maybe everybody misses it, <laughs> so they're uh, overly uh, communal when they, you know when we get out there and on the street. But I do recognize a little bit uh, more of uh, pleasantries in that, in that regard, uh, maybe a slight bit more than I, I think typically uh, aware of. Yeah. The other uh, thing that I, that I haven't personally noticed it, but I, I noticed uh, or I heard on our local uh, radio station this morning that uh, the police chief talked about an increase in speeding on the more major corridors. Uh, and so they're going to actually adjust the streetlights <laughs> so that uh, you don't get that green wave because the, they were starting to uh, recognize and realize that uh, there was excessive speeding just because of the lack of traffic. Are, are you seeing anything similar to that in, in Birmingham? 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. It seems like that would be a logical thing that people would do because of the lack of traffic for sure. And many of our streets often get quite busy in a normal circumstance. So it's inevitable that I think you'd have a little bit. I haven't frankly noticed an, an, an uptick in that. Uh, I'm sure that's probably the case in certain areas, but I just have noticed the lack of, of course, the lack of traffic, you know, and, and overall that's been very evident, but I haven't really picked up on too many people doing some exceptional speeds beyond uh, the norm. Yeah. And, and I'm with you. It's what I've noticed is that people who are driving, at least in the residential streets are, uh, are really being quite careful. I wanted to sort of shift gears a little bit because you have another role. You are the president of Archive DS. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about your role there? Yeah, our, our office is, uh, our, pri- our primary office is downtown Detroit. And for uh, many years, uh, my partners and I, uh, Dorian Moore and Kevin Borsay, have been working on city building projects for many, many years now, going back uh, into the early 90s. We've been downtown for for all those years, and with with really a focus on building great cities, and with Detroit as a primary one that we have always seen as a city with great potential, uh, even in the days that uh, didn't look so promising. And we've been downtown before many people believed, and we've always believed in the city uh, really coming around and be, and be, becoming uh, great in a different way than it was in the past. Uh, but in a new way, what I often call the next Detroit. And we've been building the next Detroit for the last 25, 30 years. And it's been very, very exciting. And we're at a point now with a significant amount of, uh, of new development and new activity in the city. So um, the next Detroit is clearly upon us. And uh, our role now is just to keep pushing and make the mom- you know, build the momentum. Uh, our role in, uh, in our, at Archive DS in the city is uh, we're architects, we're urbanists, we do master planning, urban design, we do architectural projects, a lot of uh, adaptive reuse, historic preservation, infill development, and those are the kinds of things that we've done over the years. And, you know, we always look for projects that create a synergy and allow for a district to be developed or enhance a street or a particular neighborhood or what have you. And those are the projects that we've been involved with over the years. And Thankfully, we've seen many of the many of the projects that we worked on have helped to ignite uh, an opportunity for districts to evolve. And, and now they're oftentimes highly producing districts that uh, really make the city just an exciting place to be. And uh, we're just we couldn't be more pleased with the things that have been happening in Detroit over the last uh, 15 years or 20 yeah, and it's, I've had the opportunity to visit Detroit a, a couple of times over the last few years, and uh, I've been just absolutely blown away by the recovery that Detroit is experiencing and the, all the hard work that's going into bringing that fine city back around. For people who don't really have an image of, of Detroit in mind, I think that it's it might be hard for for them to imagine the richness of the architecture that's there, some of the old buildings, and I, I think you you might have even had something to do with a small business in one building where the the interior is just a magnificent old structure. Can you speak to that a little bit about what makes Detroit so incredibly special? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that people really notice when they come come to Detroit. And it's surely one of the things that is, have excited myself and my partners over the years and why we've invested so much as part of the city, uh, to be part of the city and the growth of the city. Of course, I grew up in the city, so I have a, you know, I was born on the west side in the, in the Cody Rouge district. And, and so I have an embedded uh, history in the city proper that uh, that never goes away. Once you're once you're born in the city, you know it's always with you. And so I've I've lived my entire life either being a resident of the city or an office resident of the city, where my office has been. That I've I've spent my entire life in the city, one way or another. But the thing that I think people really notice is exactly what you said, John. The idea that Detroit really and it, it's one of those things where you want to boom at the right time. Cities boom at certain times, certain decades, certain periods 
uh, as we all know, there's certain cities, you know, boom and, and boom in the 1890s and the boom in the 1910s, 1920s, or the boom in the 1950s or, or the 80s or 90s, whatever it is. And Detroit has been very blessed by booming in incredible periods where the kind of architecture and the kinds of the kind of urbanism that we had built. And granted, you have to keep in mind that Detroit is one of the oldest large cities in America, over 300 years old, originated in 1701 as a city uh, proper. And so it's one of the oldest cities in the country uh, outside of the East Coast. I think it's the oldest large city in America. And so if you look at that history, and that's why I always say the next Detroit, because that's this idea that you know, we're, we're Detroit over 300 and, you know, 18, 19 years has been a different city over those periods. It's been this kind of city and that kind of city, a smaller city, a bigger city. You know, after a big fire, of course, in 1805, we became a different city. You know, I mean, those are all those are all sort of periods. And, and we really were blessed with this idea that we grew exponentially during these great periods. And, one, and two specific ones that come to mind that actually have left such an incredible legacy, which is the uh, late 1800s, 1860, 70, 80, 90, in that period there. Late 1800s with the Industrial Revolution and a lot of the things that happened. Detroit was, of course, a manufacturing hub for many years. And we had an exceptional amount of growth there. So there's, there's remnants of great urbanism and architecture from that period in the late 1800s. And then, of course, with the auto industry and mass production and, and all that, the, you know, the, uh, the Henry Ford uh, boom and all that, uh, the car industry coming in, in in the early, in the teens and the mid-teens all the way to the Depression. So this period from, you know, 1915, 14, all the way to, to so the, the, those years up until 1930, there was an incredible amount of growth. And during that period, we had skyscrapers going up by some of the greatest architects in the world, like Daniel Burnham, multiple buildings by Daniel Burnham, and Wirt Rowland, who uh, designed the building you're referring to, which is, of course, the Guardian Building, one of the greatest skyscrapers ever built, 1927. The Penobscot Building, the Buell Building, the Book Building, the Weston Book Cadillac. I mean, I could go on and on. There's tower after tower after tower that were built in that period, in addition to such great things like Orchestra Hall and the Detroit Institute of Arts and Cass Gilbert's uh, public library, our main public library designed by Cass Gilbert. And there's an incredible amount of architecture and urbanism that happened during these really important boom times. And that left us with this unbelievable legacy. Now, granted, of course, in the 50s, uh, post-war, we, we, like many cities in America, started to tear down a lot of buildings, but we didn't tear down all. And we didn't tear down as much as, uh, as some cities. And we had a lot to start from. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize, but outside of Chicago and New York, uh, Detroit has the largest amount of pre-World War II skyscrapers in the world. And so that legacy is still here. And thankfully, as we build the next Detroit, almost all of those buildings uh, designed by Albert Kahn and Burnham and all that have been fully renovated and brought back online, many of which were decaying and abandoning, uh, abandoned for many years. And all, almost all of them are either online currently, um, have come online in recent years, or are in, in the works right now. So we don't have many empty buildings. We don't have many buildings that haven't been addressed. And so that's this building of the base. You know, they say good bones, right? We've had incredible bones. And I think that's what people recognize when they come to Detroit, as you have, and others. And of course, when we've had events like the CNU, the Congress of New Urbanism was here a couple of years ago. And what I heard again and again is like, I had no idea. I had no idea that, that there was so much great architecture and urbanism here that, of course, is the foundation that we're building upon. And it's, it's like most cities would dream of having what we have and we didn't tear down. And we now are resurrecting uh, to an amazing level. And that's what some of our greatest assets today. Yeah, and you can count me in uh, in that group that just had no clue. Uh, and and I even did my my graduate work uh, just down the road at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I had no clue. I mean, Detroit just wasn't on my radar screen, and I had no reason to be downtown and uh, stayed focused on my studies, I guess. <laughs> but uh, 
being able to experience it during the CNU was was really, really special. And I was able to explore so much of the city, especially uh, during some of my morning runs, you know, getting around the city and, and several bike rides. One thing I wanted to, to note is... You, you use the term skyscrapers for these buildings, and and I don't think they do them justice. These are really absolutely beautiful buildings. They're like pieces of art into the sky. And, and so, you know, because for some people, I mean, especially for somebody like me, I was born in Los Angeles. And so when you say skyscraper, I, I don't think of a beautiful piece of art. Um, speak to that a little bit. Well, you know, the, the, the term skyscraper, you know, came out of that idea of, of the towers of the early, you know, the early tall buildings that we had, largely in New York, Chicago, that were really reaching for the sky. You know, these, these majestic buildings that would sort of start to set back and, and start to s- sort of become just vertical in their whole orientation, the articulation of the facades and, of course, the, the orientation of the, of the, the windows and, and then the articulation at the top and what have you. Just really expressing their form as uh, reaching to the heavens, as they say. So uh, Detroit was, was in, that, in that pack of, uh, of buildings that really were of that period with that mindset. And uh, some of the early majestic towers, as we always think about, like the Empire State Building and uh, the Tribune Tower in Chicago or the Chrysler Building and those, you know, Detroit had this similar, similar buildings that were rising in the same, same manner, the David Stott Building, the David Broderick Tower, uh, the, uh, the, the Guardian Building, as, as I said, uh, uh, the Penobscot Building, they all express this verticality that that really is the essence of the original concept of the skyscraper and of, of many of which uh, was lost during the you know a lot of the modernist periods where where towers became sort of boxes but uh, detroit's uh, base of or prominence of the the towers in in detroit are really largely these sort of classic towers classic skyscrapers and, and that's what people surely recognize when they come, because I think it is pretty unique. And in a place like New York, where it's so incredibly large, many of those get lost in the shuffle, if you will, because there's so many buildings, and even in Chicago to some degree. So we have that quality of those buildings. We just don't have as many buildings as New York and Chicago. So I think they, they tend to stand out a little bit more because they are so prominent. And of course, as you mentioned, some of these buildings, like the Fisher Building designed by Albert Kahn, or of course, the Guardian Building, the David uh, uh, Whitney Building, which is now a hotel, a mixed-use hotel uh, residence, they have lobbies that are like, you know, amazing lobbies. They're pieces of art for sure. They're lobbies that are some of the most beautiful interior spaces that you'll find. And nobody walks into the Guardian Building without their jaw falling to the ground. I mean, it is that majestic, important, significant uh, eye-catching. And of course, that can be said of the Fisher Building and a number of other buildings, which really, if some are more grand and some are a bit smaller, but they are so notable in their architecture and design that they're, they're definitely worth walking through. If, even if you're not an architectural historian, I think anyone would find them to be quite amazing. Yeah, I concur. Uh, I think it was at your recommendation that Victor and I take our our fun run, at least one of them, uh, through uh, to the the Guardian Building to to end our our fun run that we do as part of a CNU each year, and and we did, and everybody in the fun run they they were like, oh, that was. This is the best part of the run. You know, they were just blown away by how beautiful that interior is. So one of the other things that I love about Detroit is that as part of this new version of Detroit is they're really looking at trying to become a more people-oriented place. I'm seeing a lot more uh, appreciation for walking and biking in, in the downtown area. The Dekinder Cut is an absolutely wonderful activity asset. Uh, the river f- uh, waterfront uh, trail there is, is so comfortable. Um, every time I visit Detroit, I've usually have my bike with me. And so I'm, I'm zipping around the city and there's plenty of right of way that can be redefined. Talk a little bit about that, that transformation that's taking place in the city as well. 
Yeah, that's, I think it's a, a really important point. We have increased our mobility systems, if you will, in recent years. Of course, Detroit, known as the Motor City, I think a lot of people's perception is that it's nothing but cars. And, you know, and if you're not in a car, you're probably not going to have a, a pleasant experience. But that actually is, you know, <laughs> really far from the truth. As you know, we've increased the mobility in, in a couple, in the last couple of years, we've added a a streetcar uh, down the middle of the Q line, down the middle of Woodward Avenue, which goes a few miles from the from the riverfront uh, up into uh, what's what we, we would call the the, uh, the new center district. So we've added that whole component, which starts to connect in a linear manner uh, a whole series of important amenities. We've really embraced the sidewalks and pedestrian uh, areas as much as possible. We've enhanced downtown and, and the center urban core uh, public spaces, really upgraded places like Capitol Park and Campus Martius, which is our main sort of public square, and as well Grand Circus Park, and and then uh, now Roosevelt Park by the old train station, which is being renovated right now. I mean, a whole series of public spaces, but then you go into some of the old industrial zones that have been uh, that have been converted, like you said, the Quindercut, the Quindercut was a was a rail, a submerged rail corridor that ran from the, the northern suburbs into downtown, uh, right along the waterfront into what was the industrial sort of waterfront at one point. And uh, it had been abandoned years ago, and now it is a, an incredible uh, bike running path with lighting. And, and it's really quite urban and eclectic because the, um, the old, as you, as you know, going there, I mean, it's really quite unique. It's not pristine and polished, which we like. This idea that there's a sort of urban roughness to it that's still there, which is some of the uh, some of the bridges that have been taken out and the concrete that ho- held the bridges up have some graffiti on them, and and there's a sort of patina that is of the old rail corridor that was abandoned for many years, but yet with this pristine path with ni- nice lighting and sitting areas and a number of different sort of urban elements that happen along the way. Just an incredible uh, pedestrian zone, and it connects the northern part of the downtown center into the new riverfront walk, which is uh, called the River Walk. And that's something, of course, that for many, many years, as with so many cities, had had this um, industrial orientation, whether it be rail lines, we had concrete plants on them, and all kinds of uh, manufacturing and industrial uses along the corridor, along the river for many, many years. And back into the 70s, there were uh, big plans and ideas of converting much of those starting to be abandoned uh, uses into people spaces. And that has now come full circle from an idea going back 30, 40 years into reality. And we're connecting, uh, you know, Frederick Law Olmsted did uh, the Belle Isle Island, which is a 2,000 acre island, which is all public and, uh, and, and it's a great asset. And now that's, that's just east of downtown. That's connected to the Riverwalk, which goes all the way downtown. And there are a series of elements. We have now an urban beach along there and a number of different urban elements. We can ride bikes and walk. And, and then there's now housing coming in and such. And then now we're working toward the east. We've had a um, Ralph Wilson Foundation is, is helping to fund a huge uh, multi-acre park on the west side of, of downtown, which will be connected to the Riverwalk going west. So we've built from downtown east for, uh, for a couple of miles into, into Belle Isle Park. And now we're going from downtown west and connecting these elements. So there's um, a whole series of different big moves. Uh, back uh, about 10 years ago, my firm was uh, the urban design consultant on a citywide master plan for non-motorized activity. So the city really didn't have bike paths or any kind of non-motorized activity uh, back bit, uh, 10, 10 plus years ago. We were hired by the city to s- fully study the entire city of 138 square miles and identify ways and a hierarchy of how we could implement some level of bike infrastructure throughout the city. And part of our primary strategy was, through our studies, was that the streets were built too wide many years ago. And they were largely, most of our avenues and many of our streets were wide, wider than they needed to be, and that we could easily accommodate adding through striping and paint non-motorized systems in a number of different areas. And when we handed that plan into the city, and at the time, you know, over 10 years ago, I thought, you know, 
this is not a bike oriented city. I don't know how much people will engage in biking. So I'm not sure if we're going to see this plan really go into fruition, but I think it's a great plan and it's easy to get done because it's really about paint. And if the city's real, really serious about adding that mobility option, I think we could go a long way in a short time. And I was very, very pleased to see that the city embraced the concept of non-motorized and embraced uh, many of our recommendations and started within a short period of time painting large areas, multiple miles of of non-motorized biking systems throughout. We started turning one-way streets into two-way streets, adding bike lanes, designated, painted, redoing parking, all of those things. And I would have to say today, you could clearly say Detroit is a very bike-oriented city, and I often call it Detroit Bike City because I think it really... We've really embraced that option, and there's a significant amount of people using the bikes. And we have hundreds of bike paths, designated special bike paths, not just Sharrows, but designated paths throughout the city, not just the downtown, but into the neighborhoods and beyond. And uh, it, it's an incredible change, and, uh, and, and I think the city and the residents have really embraced it. Yeah, I, I would concur. Um, I was... Uh, staying in the Corktown area when I was there. And uh, I just would jump on my little folding bike and uh, zip around uh, to the Congress as well as I think I, I jumped onto the, the Kindercut and went all the way up to a fabulous farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Eastern market, and, right. Yeah. So great opportunities to, to use that shared use path type, type of uh, facility from a utilitarian perspective too. It's not just recreation. Absolutely. I think people use the, it's absolutely not recreation only. It's actually, I think, primarily uh, a source for, for mobility to get around. It's uh, in many ways a commuter system. Just a quick intermission here to catch our breath. In the second half of this episode, we dive into a discussion of Mark's second home in Toronto, Ontario, and his commitment to urban studies through travel. But before we continue, I'd like to thank you for listening and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on the listening platform of your choice. And be sure to tell a friend or several that you think might enjoy or benefit from these conversations. Now let's get back to the episode with Mark Nikita. Now, Mark, you also have a love for another city. You split your time with another uh, amazing North American city. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we have a sort of base camp in Toronto. And for many, many years, we've been, uh, you know, I've, I've gone back, I've gone to Toronto going back to when I was a kid. And I really, really love the city. And over the years, we started to really take a look. So we we have a we have a, uh, a base there for both work as well as for uh, sort of a living condition. We have a, a condo in downtown Toronto. We have a base for our work. We have a number of different colleagues that work with us there, and we've done work uh, urban design work in the city of Toronto, and uh, and so we have a, a working environment, an office, a situation there, a whole series of uh, of great colleagues that are part of our team. And then, and then we have a home base that we use uh, to really live in the city. So I, I, I share my time between Birmingham, where my primary home is, and uh, downtown Detroit, where my office is, and then in Toronto as well. So those are three very, very different cities that have all incredible assets. Uh, they're growing in different ways, and they're exciting places to be in. And from my perspective as an urbanist, as a city builder, I learn very different things from each place and my role in each place. And it's been one of the greatest things from my perspective because I've been able to learn very, very interesting and different ways of building great cities with different conditions, with different growth patterns, with different groups of, uh, of political and social changes and differences and different drivers economically and what have you. And it really goes to the idea that every city really has a, a certain type of DNA, if you will, and cities all grow and evolve. 
if they're organic as they are and if they change, um, and they're not Venice, which is largely a museum, but uh, most cities grow and evolve and become something else. And I've learned how with those, with my sort of three-legged stool of those three cities, I've learned extensively about, uh, about the idea of how different cities grow and engage the people that they, that they uh, accommodate. Yeah. And as it turns out, uh, Toronto is where I last saw you. I was there for the NACTO conference. And yeah, absolutely fascinating to spend a full week in the downtown area and had the opportunity to get up on your roof and and be able to see the city from a, a neat perspective there. Talk a little bit about when you compare and contrast uh, a Toronto to some of our other great cities in North America, the challenges that they're going through. Obviously, I see things through the vision of how well a city encourages healthy, active living and active mobility. And I definitely see Toronto uh, making some strides in that direction. They had a pretty impressive uh, protected bike network going in. It's certainly not perfect. They still have a lot of work to do. But speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that it's interesting how they, they – in, in we've had our, our root home there in Toronto now going back uh, – uh, over 20 years now. So it's been 22 years. So I've, I've been watching Toronto evolve over the last 20, you know, 20 plus years firsthand, you know, in, with an intimate understanding of the growth and the, uh, the evolution of the city in, in the different ways that they have in, in that city. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much that city has grown and that it is a sort of a hyper development type city. So there's been a, an incredible amount of growth uh, unbelievable amount of growth. And I, I think it's hard to even, like I could tell you about it, but you really have to be there to see it uh, because it's so exponential and so profound in, at least in North America, that uh, it's hard it's hard for people to grasp. And it's even amazing for me to gra- grasp and I've seen it firsthand. But um, with that comes all the challenges and all the difficulties of accommodating so many people and so many new residents and towers of 60, 70, 80 stories going up that have hundreds and hundreds of units of, of residents, of course, with, with you know, thousands of people living in, in, in a, on a block or two blocks that didn't have that just a few years prior. So you could just imagine the amount of growth and the impact on the whole infrastructure. And of course, that, that leads to how do you get people around and, and all that. And I would say, look, just like Detroit, and as I've seen in other cities too, I as you know, I, I travel around the world and study cities in what we call global urban study, which is our, our commitment, uh, my partners and I, in our commitment to study cities from, from all around the world. So we learn from precedent. And I, so many cities have embraced multimobility beyond the typical walking and transit and cars, which is sort of the standard. Places like Paris, places like London, uh, which I know very well, and I've spent a lot of time in those cities and, and many others, um, and Toronto and, and, and now Detroit, have all embraced alternative mobility even in the last of, you know 10 years or so. Meaning that if you were in London 10 years ago or Paris 10 years ago or Toronto 10 years ago, as I said, Detroit 10 years ago, there was really almost no biking infrastructure or very, very few people riding a bike. And they wouldn't even consider riding in the winter or the colder months, which all those cities have. And now, and Toronto's a, a, a been a great example, the infrastructure is coming. Just like I said in Detroit, we built it, people came. In Toronto, they're doing that. I noticed uh, I was in Paris, uh, I spent a lot of time in Paris in the last couple of years, significantly different. I lived in Paris back 20 years ago and there was no biking whatsoever. It was non-existent. London the same way. Now you go to London and it's like it's like uh, it's Amsterdam light and it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable the change in just a few years. So Toronto has done an incredible job of adding this system into their their overall grid. The challenge in Toronto is that it it is very very busy and in certain parts of the center city it's it's so um, it's so dense with population and the streets are relatively narrow and don't have room to, to grow that there are sort of areas where it's difficult to add. The, there's just the challenges with that. So that's been, uh, I think it's been difficult 
to add as much as they need, as much as they'd want, but they're working on that. And there are a number of different initiatives in place where there's going to be a change in the way that, uh, you know, that, that, that the streets are, are, are going to have to address the infrastructure. But they're taking it seriously because they recognize that you can't just dump everybody in the subway or on the streetcars. And of course, in Toronto, it's a very difficult place to drive. One of the most difficult places in North America to drive. It's very difficult almost all day long to get in and out of the city because there's an, an absolute minimal amount of freeways and wide streets that get people in and out. So there's, there, you would be wise to not drive. <laughs> so you, you're, but which means that you're really walking or or you're or you're jumping on the streetcar or the subway. And those are getting busier and busier. So I think riding a bike is becoming more and more a common thing to do. And you're seeing it in New York and you're seeing it in Chicago. And I, I think cities all across the country in North America, for sure, have started to truly embrace non-motorized activity and walking beyond the typical uh, level just in the last 10 years, for sure. And, uh, and it's an exciting change because, frankly, as I always say, and you've probably seen me write in my posts on Facebook, you know, I, I say it probably once a week, more mobility options equals more freedom. And I don't think a lot of people real or realize that that's actually, the, I, they don't think about it. I know you hear all the time, uh, I have a car, now I have great freedom. And the reality is with a car, of course, you have limited freedom especially if the car is your only option. And the reality is, is the more mobility options, walking, riding a bike, taking transit, or things like uh, Uber and Lyft and other options, and then ultimately have a car as an option as well. All of those, as many options as you have, equate directly to more and more freedom. And who doesn't want more freedom? I mean, I think most people would like to have as many options as they can, just like they go down the... Uh, you know, the cookie aisle at the, at the grocery store, you know, people like to have 20 different ways of uh, buying a cookie, 20 different types of cookies or cereal or whatever it is. Why not have a whole lot of different mobility options? And we got to build our cities to accommodate that. And, and, and that's, it comes down to us as city builders to make sure that we're bringing those options for people so that they can have the best experience possible in the place that they live, work and play. Yeah, I think that you've put it well there. Uh, the mobility choices is such a huge uh, aspect for our success for the future, especially in an environment now where we're seeing a lot of creativity and a lot of new types of mobility devices that are coming out. Certainly uh, around the world, we're seeing the advantage of the electric assist bikes and being able to extend the time that individuals are able to to feel like they have the freedom of mobility especially as they start getting into their their later years you know into their 80s or 90s they're they're like wow i can still kind of keep up with those youngsters in their in their 60s and 70s and so it's really opening up the the world for them and what's really beautiful about the way many of these cities are creating all ages and abilities, mobility lanes, notice how I didn't call it a bike lane, uh, is that if there's protection, if there's that separation from the fast moving motor vehicle traffic, that space can actually accommodate a large number of people on a variety of different types of, of devices, including human powered bike, electric assist bike, mobility scooters of all different sorts, and that was one of the neat things that I, I love seeing in Toronto. Yeah, and there's increasing amounts of it as well. I mean, I think people are really recognizing the the opportunity and the options that are out there. And you know, frankly, what we're what we're going to see, I think, now with this virus uh, change in the mindset that now is is the case. I mean, we're we're recognizing that there's more, more there will be more people questioning uh, taking the traditional subway, streetcar, very very high density. Uh, mobility, where obviously you get packed in, especially at rush hour times and stuff. And as we're knowing, we're seeing, and I know we're seeing it in a number of cities. I'm reading articles about how the increase in uh, in options for for walking and increase in options for for taking uh, you know some level of bike or scooter or what have you that that's increasing dramatically. And and so I'm I'm thinking that uh, as time goes on, we're going to see an increase in that. 
somewhat fueled by the circumstance that we are in right now with this uh, the virus crisis. Yeah, and and certainly, especially for some of these denser cities like a Toronto, like a New York, there's just there's no way all of these people who shift from transit can drive a single occupancy motor vehicle. That just won't work. The system can't handle that, and so that flexibility of uh, a micro mobility device, whether it's a bike or an, an electric assist bike or a scooter going to be far easier for cities to to help accommodate. And if we're still sort of in these fringe times of needing to have distancing too, it's a heck of a lot easier to you know keep six feet apart from another person on a bike than it is to uh, necessarily do that in transit. Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a comfort level there, which, uh, you know, depending on how much this this lingers and how much people feel comfortable, uh, it really could fuel an increase in uh, in this this other option, and and what I'd like to see is it, c- it continue through through the year. I mean, I I love uh, I love winter. I love four seasons in, uh, and I love to be in a city that has change every three months uh, in terms of the weather. So I I think of year round use of bikes like in Amsterdam or or in Copenhagen and a lot of European cities where doesn't matter what time of year it is. People are on their bikes. And unless it's snowing and very, very dangerous, obviously, on a bike, people are out. They just dress, dress forward and, they, and they, take, take, they take their bikes to places and what have you. And I think we're going to see an increase in, in off-season, if you will, in uh, an increase, a significant increase in non-recreational motoring around that uh, goes into people actually using it as a commuter option and a getting around option. I just think it's inevitable and we're going to see an increase in that uh, from now on. I hope you're right. So you you mentioned earlier that you have a passion for learning and a passion for you know traveling and getting into cities. I suspect that you probably have a trip planned or a trip that is has either been canceled or Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I had I had a trip I had a trip planned for for literally right right now, you know, just after Easter. And it got put on hold. Yeah, we had a spring uh, tour in place, but uh, unfortunately, that uh, that's that's going to be put on hold. But yes, you would have been seeing me post uh, post a few things about uh, about my tour of uh, of an, of another city uh, in in a week. But that's going to be you know that'll be for another time. Another time. Where were you going to be going? Well, there were a couple options, but we were looking at Copenhagen because I haven't been there in quite a while, and I want to see the changes that Jan, Jan Giel and and the uh, the city have really embraced a lot of pedestrianization and a lot of non motorized uh, changes there. And I want to see the transition because it's been quite a few years since I've been there. Um, we were also looking at uh, the area around uh, Brussels and uh, Bruges, and taking a look at some of that again, places that I've been multiple times actually. Now at this point, I've traveled to so many cities. I think I'm at 450 cities in 30 countries around the world on four continents. And so I, it's um, not that I can't. There aren't places I haven't been, but there are a lot of places that I've been, and I want to go again so that I can see the transition. Because part of our idea of studying cities is to learn what works and what doesn't work, but also to learn about, as I said, cities being organic and how they evolve and change and grow. I like to see how a city has evolved from when I was there before, either a long time ago or not so long ago. I was just in Shanghai, uh, you, I don't know, two years ago, within the last two years, and I hadn't been there in, in quite a few years. And the dramatic change between from when I was there to when I just 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 when, I mean, just incredible. And seeing Berlin in the 90s right as the wall went down and then seeing it again, um, you know, uh, 10, 15 years later, and then I went recently, uh, that, that is really important to me to see the evolution of a city. And as I said, Paris, London, places that I've been many, many times, where to see it changing into this multimodal, you know, city with all these different options that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago really is quite amazing. And so I love to learn about those things and see how you could take a city is, is, is embedded in as old as a, a Paris or a London and, and rethink the infrastructure and allow for the change for the day to accommodate the current day environment. 
it's an amazing thing to study. And that's one of the things we love to do in our global urban study is to is to, to pick up on those things. And, and my biggest thing when I'm working on projects is I, I, I often work with groups of people or, or clients and, I'll, you know, and they'll say, oh, we can't do that. And, and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know we could do that because I've seen it. And it, you know, I walked it here, or I wrote it here, or I I saw it, or I have pictures in here. You know, we can we can do that. Here's how it can be done, and that's one of the biggest benefits of our urban travel is is this idea of confidence. When we go into doing something that we have to work on and find solutions for, we often refer to solutions that we've seen in our global studies that give us confidence that things can be done differently, things can evolve. Things can be done better, and we know it because we've seen it, we've walked it, we've lived it, and um, then we have an opportunity to possibly uh, enhance another area they may, that may not be thinking that way. Yeah, and I know that you're serious about uh, your your travels and and when and you do you do take it seriously as an opportunity to learn. I I, I, I chuckle because I remember seeing you. Uh, I think you and Dorian both were at a coffee a cafe table in, in Savannah, Georgia, uh, the a couple of years ago, and you're just like hunched over, like really, really uh, focused and sketching. And because not only do you take photos, you spend a, a fair amount of time taking extensive notes and sketching. Correct? Absolutely. Our, our, you know, the idea is really to immerse ourselves in the place that we're studying. And, uh, and so, yeah, I take, I, th- I take thousands of photos. I mean, literally between 600 and 1,000 photos a day on a, tr- on a trip. Um, I'll just really go to town on documentation. But then, yes, we, we've made it a, a commitment to, to, to sit down and, and to document what we've seen identify sort of a travel log so we, we can we can really recognize places we've gone and and particular districts that we've been to that we just want to make sure that we've documented and then and then we we usually identify some kind of physical enhancement whether it be a street scene a street condition or a street section or a, a park condition or a, a building of some sort or a housing mixed use project or whatever and then we'll sketch down we'll sit down and sketch some of the fundamentals of that, just to capture the idea, not just a picture, but something that shows some of the things that we, you know, we'll walk it off and measure things and all that, because we really want to have these things. And that's really where our, our company name came from, is the idea of, we're, we're, you know, we consider ourselves, uh, it's our Archive DS or Archive Design Studio. And the idea of archiving is really what it's, what it's where, where that comes from, this idea of, of gathering from observation, from studying cities, from meeting people, from interviewing people, from photographing, from sketching ideas that we see, and archiving all of that. So we've, um, you know, over the years we've we've archived thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs and many many sketchbooks filled with uh, documentation and and drawings and and uh, and that's just I mean we love that we love cities and we want to immerse ourselves. And learn as much as possible because you know that's how we city build. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and wouldn't you agree that you have an easier time recalling that information if you did take the time to to sit down and sketch it out and and take detailed notes and, and reflections? Absolutely. No, there's no question about because it, it forces you to think about. You know, it's easy to walk through a project. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we we'll walk through a. A, you know, a hundred year old housing project in London or something or Berlin or wherever. And, you know, you can walk through it and take some photographs, but this idea of drawing a section of what you've seen and, and putting out some uh, dimensions so that when you think about, you know, was that 20 feet or was it 30 feet and how much did it set back? And, and, and it forces you really to think about the details of the thing that you were observing. And I think without sitting down and sketching some of those things, uh, and granted, you can't sketch everything because there's so much there, but there's certain things that really kind of hit your, it, it, it clicks in, you know, like, wow, I really want to document this a little bit further. And then you sit down and, and draw it up and it does embed it a bit more and it causes you to recognize some of the subtleties and the details and to think through the realities of what it is that made it something notable. 
So, um, which you, you really can't do just by taking a photograph and walking it and then going on to the next thing. So it's, um, you can't, unfortunately, we don't have the time to do that with everything that you observe that I think is, is worthwhile, but it does, um, on those certain key things, I sort of always, when I'm walking around a city, I'm like, later on when we, you know, we usually do it after dark, once the sun goes down and we, you know, we'll, we'll grab a cafe that we, you know, we're, we're, we're lured into and grab a coffee and, uh, and sit there and sketch. And, it, and it's that, it, those, those things click off during the day and say, ah, I'm going to sketch that. I'm going to definitely document that. And, you know, and you have two or three things that you've seen through the day that you sit down and you want to get down. And, and that's, uh, that's been the process that we've, you know, we've learned over the years how to do that. And that's, uh, you know, something that we've been doing going back to when we started our firm in the early nineties. And we've done it, we've done urban travel study ever since. And we've, it's evolved. The process has evolved. And now, now we spend a lot of time. And at the end of the night, we're finding a cafe or a, a you know, a, a great ca- coffee cafe or a, a nice cafe where we can get some cognac and, uh, and uh, sit by a candle and just sketch until, I mean, we don't sleep much when we're traveling. I can tell you that we, we, we close the, close the bar, if you will. And then uh, sometimes we go back to the hotel and do a uh, continue with some sketching. It's my, that's why my, my wife doesn't go with me on these travels anymore. She says, <laughs> this is too hard her. to work. She's, yeah. She's had, <laughs> she's had enough of it. No, I, I, um, I go with my colleagues. I go with my partners and then we have a couple of other colleagues that we work with, um, a group of about three or four or five altogether that we uh, tend to go and, and, uh, you know, you can sleep when you get home. I mean, it, when you're, when you're traveling, it's, uh, you know, I try to push, uh, 22, 23, 24, uh, as many hours as I can get in. And, uh, and, and it, that's not sitting around and, uh, watching Netflix. It's, uh, it's, it's working, but of course it's, it's a passion and we love it. And I would do it no, no differently, uh, as I try to stay up as, as late as I can into the wee hours and, and document what I saw and then get ready for, get, throw a couple hours in, uh, in the can and then get, get ready for the next day where we're going to do it all over again. You know, that's good stuff. Mark, we've been chatting for quite some time here. Uh, any last nuggets of advice that you have for the listeners about creating great cities? Well, I, I think what, you know, one, one of the things that I've learned and I've really come to embrace in recent years is this idea of, of, of uh, you know, what, what I now consider myself having been, you know, I, I've been an architect for many years and then I started thinking of myself as an urban designer. And then over time, you know, we, we got into uh, doing development. So, and then of course, then I get a, you know, got involved in, in a, uh, appointed and elected positions and all that. So, uh, you know, all of these different things are different experiences, but now I, I really have come to embrace the idea that all of those things are about one thing, which is this idea of city building. And now I consider myself more than any of those other elements, more than being a mayor, more than being an architect, more than being an urban designer, more than being a developer or an educator. I feel like at this point, I'm a city builder. And I think people should think about City building is about many, many things. And to build great cities, you have to have many of those things working at least somewhat in the right direction, in the same direction. So whether we're urban planning, whether we're doing architecture, whether we have a developer that's doing a development, whether the city leadership is engaged or whatever, you know, however it is, there's so many different things that make a city great for people. And it takes all of those things moving in the right direction. It's one of the things that it's that I've really learned and I've come to really embrace in recent years. And now, because of my many experiences, I have this sort of multifaceted view on things. But I think more and more people have to realize that any one of those things on their own will not be able to uh, make a city great. It's about how all those things work together mobility, walkability, I mean, you could go on and on. Those are sort of fundamentals of urban design, of course, and, and all that. But I, I think that, that recognizing the multifaceted, the importance of the multifaceted view on city building or on uh, city growth and development is really, uh, will lead to successful, more successful cities. And that's what I guess I would leave behind as uh, one of the most important lessons that I've learned over my many years of studying cities and being involved in building Mark, thank you so very much. So glad to be here, John. I'm looking forward to our next uh, coffee and, uh, 
either in, in the streets of Toronto, the streets of Detroit, the streets of Birmingham, or the streets of uh, Austin, or wherever else we end up meeting up. Fantastic. I love it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Mark Nikita of Archive DS. He is most certainly one of the most thoughtful, sincere, and sharing of my mini CNU, that is Congress for the New Urbanism, friends and colleagues. I have several other great guests lined up for future episodes, including Lynn Richards with CNU, Amanda Popkin out of the Dallas area, and Jeff Wood with the Overhead Wire. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me with suggested guests or feedback. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is john at activetowns.org. That's john, J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. And don't forget, you can follow Active Towns on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Well, that's all for now. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>